So we are continuing this series on chasing happy and wondering about this life that Jesus invites us into, that while we are always chasing this elusive happiness, that there is perhaps this deeper life that we are being invited into by our Lord and Savior. And we, over the last couple of weeks, have taken a look at the hopeful life and the blessed life. And today we are going to take a look at the grateful life or the thankful life. And to do so, we are going to focus on Psalm number 92. So hear the word of God. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The dullard cannot know, the stupid cannot understand this. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For your enemies, O Lord, for your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. In in old age, they still produce fruit. They are always green and full of sap, showing that the Lord is upright, that He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. We thank You, O God, for this, for this day for this moment, for this chance to be before your table, for the experience of worship. If we gave ourselves the chance, we could go on all day giving you thanks. We pray, O Lord, that in these moments we would be given the chance to wonder about this word just read and the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Some of the most arresting chapters in the Bible, in my humble opinion, come at the end of the story that we find in the book we call Job. Most of us know at least a little bit about the story of Job, enough to say that Job's life Job's story has a little something to do with suffering. When Job comes to mind for most of us, we think of misfortune and pain, and that would be putting it mildly. Well over 30 chapters are given over to the suffering of Job and his attempts to understand it, along with the help of three friends whose attempt to explain it all is not very helpful. But the arresting chapters come at the end of Job's story when after these long speeches of lament and philosophical and theological musings, all of a sudden, at the end of the story, God speaks up. 
And what God says is very interesting. I'm sure God really appreciates it when I tell people that what he has to say is really interesting. I'm sure God will make mention of that when I get to the pearly gates. Thanks, Steve, for the good thumbs up. But what is interesting about what God has to say is that God does not make any attempts to assuage Job's feelings of pain and abandonment. He doesn't try to explain to Job why such bad things could happen to such good people like him. Instead, God begins to talk about the big, wide, old world. What, what seems like a hundred rhetorical questions, God wonders with Job about the vastness and the wonder of the universe. God talks to Job about the foundations of the earth and the morning stars and the containment of the seas and the, and the night and the day and the snow and the rain and the lion and the cub and the calving of the deer and the mane of the horse and the eggs of the ostrich. It's almost as if God takes Job on this journey through a botanical and zoological garden and invites Job to look around himself to widen the view of his lens from the scarcity of his life to the enormity of the life around him. To adjust the focus of his life from those things that he does not have to the things that he does have and has had all along. And God unapologetically wonders with Job, hmm, where did all this come from, O ye who is so fixated on what is not in your basket? Was all this uh, your idea or, or did it come from some source of a greater benevolence? As if almost as if the whole story of Job is trying to say that while the world can truly be a crummy place and, and while there is a great share of human suffering. And while you may have yourself experienced scarcity and loss, the story is not complete. In fact, your life is not complete until you have worked to see this bigger picture. And the bigger picture of life and the world is one of staggering abundance. Staggering abundance. So... I suppose it is no surprise that the book of Job in the Bible is followed by the book of Psalms. These 150 poem prayers to God, most of which, while expressing just about every human emotion, lament and anger and loss and longing and hope and faith and trust, in the end and in the midst of all this emotion, these psalms arrive at some wider view of the world and its creator, and in the end, give thanks and praise for the great abundance of life. It is this great journey, right, of the spiritual life, widening the lens from the particularities and scarcities of this moment to the grand sweep of abundance and fortune. Because the truth is, I have never met an unhappy, thankful person. I have never met an unhappy, thankful person. I've met unhappy rich people. I've met unhappy poor people. I've met unhappy disappointed people. I've met unhappy bitter people. I've met unhappy selfish people. But I've never met an unhappy, thankful person. Because, you see, thankful people are the ones 
who have stuff in their lives, right? They, they, they have stuff in their lives, but they have managed to work through the stuff of life and they've been able to somehow see past the immediate, past the scarcity, past the cynicism, past the wounds, to this wider view of abundance. And it's when they bring themselves to this point of gratitude, of praise, of thanksgiving, that's when they begin to experience what Jesus calls the abundant life. Scientists are now calling this the science of awe. That when we allow ourselves the opportunity to experience a sense of awe about the universe, scientists are discovering that something biochemically happens inside of us. And we become more productive. We become clearer of thought. And we become more charitable. Seek out, writes Dr. Keltner, Professor of psychology at the University of California in Berkeley. Seek out, he says, experiences that give you goosebumps and you will be a healthier person. It's what I think C.S. Lewis had in mind when he said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. In other words, the whole end game of life is gratitude. And gratitude comes not from what we think we have gotten for ourselves, not from those things we think we have achieved for ourselves, not from our gets, but from our graces. Gratitude comes when we get our heads and hearts around all those things that we have been graced with. Things that have come to us without any involvement on our part. I have a friend who regularly gives thanks for a man named Brother Matthias. Brother Matthias was a priest who worked in Baltimore at the turn of last century at the St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys. It was a school for troubled boys. And one of these troubled boys that Brother Matthias worked with was a boy named George. And, and George was a pain. And, and he caused trouble at just every turn. But Brother Matthias, because it was his calling, kept working with George and finally figured out that George liked baseball. And he figured out that, that George had a, had a pretty strong arm. And he figured out that George could throw you know, a pretty good fastball. So Brother Matthias crouched into a catcher's position almost every day and had George pitch, and pit, pitch after pitch after pitch. And, and then, then Brother Matthias figured out that George could, he could also swing the bat. So, so Brother Matthias could throw him, throw him pitch after pitch after pitch. And George got to be a pretty good hitter. And, and when George turned 19, the Boston Red Sox got wind of him and, and signed him. And, and later they traded him. They traded George Herman Ruth, Babe Ruth, to the Yankees, where, where the Babe hit home run after home run after home run. And so my friend gives thanks to Brother Matthias. Why? Well, because his grandparents, my friend's grandparents, met for the first time out in the bleachers of Yankee Stadium trying to catch a Babe Ruth home run. No Brother Matthias, no Babe Ruth, no Babe Ruth, no grandparents, no grandparents, no Rob. My friend says grace all the time for Brother Matthias. Four degrees removed, he gives thanks for his parents. His parents give thanks for their parents. Their parents give thanks for, for the babe. And the babe gave thanks all the time for Brother Matthias. 
So it doesn't take much, does it, to rewind the tape, to start thinking about all the events that have conspired beyond our control to provide you with with who you are and how you are today. The psalmist says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that we were knit together in our mother's wombs. And as far as I know, we didn't have any choice over any of that. Take the brains that got formed in our thick noggins, we did not choose. No orders placed on Amazon.com for our cerebellums. They just got given us that somehow we got the brain matter to think, to choose, to laugh, to pass our exams, to talk, to see, to understand, to get a job, to pay the bills, to buy a house, and to save a few nickels and dimes. No orders on eBay for palm trees waving in your backyard or that orchid dazzling you with pink or that pot of dolphins appearing and reappearing or that waft of fresh brewed coffee steaming from your cup or or that friend who calls you out of the blue or that novel that sends you to tears or that constitution of our country that sets you free or that grandchild that melts you with her smile or that sandhill crane that promenades across your front yard. No, none of those things were our gets. They are the graces. None of those things you got because you were smart or creative or, or wise or worked really hard. It's all... A grace and saying grace is the pinnacle of living. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, says the psalmist, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Praise, said C.S. Lewis, is inner health made audible. And we are our healthiest, aren't we? When we have widened the view of our camera and taken in the frame of our lives all of what is beyond our life, all of what is before our life, all of what is above our life, and all of what is ahead of our life. So what might that look like? What might your days look like if you began this practice, this practice of saying grace, What might your life look like if you understood that the consummate life had everything to do with giving praise, just saying grace? Well, I suppose you have to start by seeing grace. You have to see grace to say grace. And you don't see grace on Netflix or on your iPhone. You see grace when you put on that wide-angle lens inside of here and outside of here when you pause to take the time to think of all the graces, all the graces that have come your way and are coming your way right now when you, when you, practice, when you practice the science of awe. I think that's why when Robert Frost got asked of all his poems which one was his favorite, it didn't take him long to answer. It was one of his first and one of his shortest. A little poem called The Pasture. And it goes like this. I'm going out to clean the pasture spring. I'll only stop to rake the leaves away and wait to watch the water clear I may. I shan't be long, you come too. I'm going out to fetch the little calf that's standing by the mother. It's so young, it totters when she licks it with her tongue. I shan't be long, 
you come to. You come to. That's what the Good Shepherd says as he waves to us. You come to. My shepherd, your shepherd, who makes us lie down in green pastures, who leads us beside the still waters, who restores our souls. You come to, he says, and, and see the grace, the pasture spring, the teetering calf, the same shepherd who prepares a table before us in the presence of friend and foe alike and says, you, you come to. Just a simple meal. A simple cup, a, a simple loaf, but, but come. It's a grace, not a get. You didn't do anything to deserve this. This is no brilliant discovery on eBay. It's just a gift. It's a life. It's a sacrifice. Not because of anything other than the same love that knit you together in your mother's womb. You come to.